Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. I'm Kimberly Trung, and by my virtual left side, I've got Doug Ameth. Hi, I'm Doug. Full stop. That's for you, Paul. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> the shortest Doug's ever introduced himself. And then to my virtual right, I've got the incomparable Paul Ducklin. Hello, I'm Paul Ducklin. You may recognize my voice from such amazing <laughs> videos as 60 Second Security, Naked Security Live, and other podcasts such as the Sophos Techno series. Doesn't that feel good, Paul? Isn't that just. <laughs> it does, actually. Yeah, I yeah. get where you're coming from. To look back on simpler times in your life when, you know, all these great accomplishments like. Yeah. Wireless floor plan videos. And- <laughs> Wireless. Product demos. <laughs> oh, the good old days of the wireless floor plan videos. Mm. I'm going to tease our Ono of the week. And let's just say that it's a throwback to my favorite decade, the 80s. It's a cautionary tale about backups. You're going to love this one. Stick around to the end and you can hear it my Ono of the week. the 80286 chip when that mm. was revolutionary and new. Actually, if you ever programmed for the 286, that segmentation model, because there's no other kind of virtual memory, was incredibly complicated, which is why it never took off. I was just going to say the same thing, Paul. You took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) Three stories we're going to talk about. U.S. Department of Justice reignites the battle to break encryption. That is going to take a while. This may be the first six-hour podcast in the history (laughs) of the Naked Security Podcast. We'll try not to do that. Russian government hackers charged with cyber crimes by the U.S. And finally, Chrome Zero Day in the Wild. Patch now. But first, in 1968, an American tycoon bought London Bridge, all 10,000 tons of it, and moved it brick by brick to the desert town of Lake Havasu City, Arizona. Who knew? I'm guessing Paul knew. Interesting. There is another London Bridge now, of course. But it actually looks quite good in its new location. The reason I know that story, and everybody who has an association with England does, is it's actually one of those things where you misunderstand the story to throw shade at your transatlantic cousins. So the story you'll hear in England is, hey, did you hear that some dummy in Arizona bought London Bridge thinking he was buying Tower Bridge, which is the one that goes up and down? And when he got there, he went, hey, where are the bascules, dude? And in fact, that's... (laughs) where are the bascules, dude? (laughs) I love this reenactment, Duck. Keep going. They're, that's what they're called, the bits, parts of a bridge that go up and down and join I the- feel like that's an episode of Drunk History, yeah. though. Hey, we're the Baskills, dude. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. I love your reenactment, oh, no, Duck. And, and so it was all this thing, ha, 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 look, you know how silly Americans are. They, they just love anything that's old and you can charge them it's what true. you like for it. This guy struck a great deal. He knew exactly what he was getting. And if you think about it, Tower Bridge would have been absolutely useless for his purpose. And as it is, he's created this sort of grand and apparently very popular centerpiece for the city. And in America, my understanding is that people thought he was crazy because they go, what, dude, what are you doing building a city in the middle of the desert? It'll never work. So they (laughs) wouldn't care about the bridge. That was the least of it. And apparently it's uh, quite a nice place to live these days. We are uh, suckers for bascules here in America, so I can Can, see why. Can we also take a moment to acknowledge the fact that Paul Ducklin, on the record, said... Throw shade. Mm-hmm. Quote, throw shade. I'm proud of you, Duck. That's a great yeah. term. We spend a lot of time trying to come up with titles for these podcasts, but I think this one will most certainly be called The Bascule Fiasco. Yeah. <laughs> and then there will definitely be a mention of throwing shade. I have, to, I have to acknowledge that. Duck, I'm proud of you. Me too. Uh, should we get to our first story? Uh, so <laughs> we shall. 
So the United States Department of Justice sent out a press release on a Sunday, which is kind of an odd choice. Uh, the name of the press release is International Statement End-to-End Encryption and Public Safety. The first paragraph starts out, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, encryption is great. It's really important. keeps people safe. The second paragraph starts out, and I'm paraphrasing, but there's really a lot of challenges, especially when it comes to things like sexually exploited children. We need access, we, the uh, Justice Department and other areas of law enforcement, need access to some of the things that are encrypted in order to keep people safe. So uh, we hear the undersigned, and this was signed by the DOJ and governments, uh, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, India, and Japan. We think that you should, uh, when you're building technology companies, when you're building new apps and services that leverage encryption, we think you should keep the public safety in mind when you're building these systems. And we need to be able to fight against these the illegal content and uh, make it a safety issue to facilitate the investigation and prosecution of offenses to safeguard the vulnerable. So they're like, build this perfect system that's both weak and strong at the same time. We need access to it, law enforcement, and you should actually consult us while you're building these systems so that we can provide feedback that is both, quote, substantive and genuinely influences design decisions. So, In other words, you do the hard work because this is very, very, very difficult, and then we'll let you know whether it's good slash bad enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the thing there, Doug, is that they danced around the mulberry bush, didn't they, and carefully avoided using the B word. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about bascules here. I'm talking about back doors. <laughs> Basically, we want a system that is so strong that we are all trusted and it will guard our privacy forever and ever. But we also want it to leak data when we need it to. And nobody knows how to do that for the reason that it's probably not possible. I, that is my, I was going to say, there are so many questions here with this, but the, the big overarching question is, is this even possible to build a system that is safe for everyone, except that only law enforcement has access to? The normal objection is you can't have a backdoor because A, who are you going to tell about it? And B, once they know, how are you going to stop them knowing about it? In other words, basically, as soon as someone finds out you left the window around the back of the house open, nobody's going to try and break in through the front door anymore. It's almost as and though a back door is still, in fact, a door. A, you can bet your boots that the crooks are not going to use the legally mandated system that has the back door in it because they're crooks. And B, you can guarantee yourself that the crooks are going to be going hell for leather trying to figure out how the back door works so they can get in to the correspondence of all the law-abiding people who feel that even though they don't want to, they're kind of obliged to use the flawed version. So it's almost like the crooks get double bonus out of this. They're not going to use the system that could be cracked anyway, and they're going to go all out to try and crack the system that the rest of us have to use so that they can doubly do us down. It could turn into like an eternal blue type situation where this thing was developed by people who should be trusted, but then was leaked out and then everyone else got to use it, right? That's probably the most obvious counterexample. 
you know, the, the NSA had the zero day, eternal blue, that only they knew about. Like, if anything was worth keeping a secret, it was that. You'd think of all the things that they would never let slip, that would be it. And even that escaped. So now you're saying, well, let's have a, for example, one, one example might be that, well, what you do is whenever you make an encrypted connection, say for a message, which is end-to-end encrypted. So, Doug, I'm sending you a message. I encrypt it on my device. Only you and I ever have the keys. We throw them away when they're done. And that means that nobody along the way, not even the service provider or the person who is running the system that delivers the message can look inside it. It's like sealed. So even if they store it, it's of no use to them. What you could do is you could say that whenever you send a message like that, you encrypt a second copy and you go and put it in a cupboard somewhere. And the only way you can ever decrypt the other copy of the message is if a judge issues a warrant, etc., etc. And of course, the counter argument to that is that cupboard full of long-term encrypted data and keys is going to get very, very, very big. And if the NSA couldn't keep hold of one tiny little exploit that turned into the WannaCry virus and the NotPetya virus, then you're kind of thinking, what hope have we got when you're looking at millions, billions, trillions of, in- of decryption keys? And how do you decide who's supposed to have access to them anyway? Maybe the top level court. Can the next level of court down approve it? What about the court level below that? Can the federal investigators see it? Can state investigators see it? Municipal investigators? Can the revenue service see it? Can the revenue service in another country see it because they asked nicely? There's so much complexity that how could you ever manage this? Instead of trying to find other investigative solutions, that allow you to identify the people who are actually committing crimes that just happen to be internet-enabled. I think, Duck, you say, the dilemma here should be obvious. If we weaken our encryption systems on purpose to make it easier and easier to catch someone, we simultaneously make it easier and easier for anyone to prey successfully on everyone. I think that's a really good way to summarize, sadly, this, the complexity of this entire story. I am fully sympathetic to law enforcement here. You know, they're looking at some of the most odious crimes you can possibly imagine, whether that's involving child abuse, terrorism, murder, stealing vast amounts of money and draining it out of our economy. I get the point that we don't want to make it easy for crooks to do that. But do we want to put absolutely everybody at risk from those self-same crooks by forcing law-abiding people to use a weaker system than the crooks are likely to use themselves. So the fact that sometimes evidence that you might like to get is not available, that's not a new problem for law enforcement. And putting us all at risk, particularly given the extent to which we rely on encryption ourselves for things like online commerce and interacting with government as private individuals, For example, doing our tax returns, registering for our social security number, applying for a passport, renewing our driving license. Do we really want to put absolutely all of that at risk in the hope that we might make it easier sometimes to catch crooks where in theory we could find another way to do it? I've had this conversation with non-technical people about the backdoors conversation and and invariably the response is, what am I? What are my messages that are? I've got nothing to hide. It's like you don't understand how much relies on encryption. Like every site you log into, your bank, like all these financial transactions you make, any sort of private information that you send that could be leveraged, not by law enforcement to 
do bad, but crooks that could just watch you do all these things. This would be such a giant overhaul that it, it seems almost too daunting. Is this a problem that could potentially be solved by something like AI or identity management? There certainly isn't an obvious answer, or we would have had one in the 2000s, in the 1990s, in the 1980s. What we do know that the last time the United States tried to regulate encryption by controlling it, the export of it as if it were a munition, the side effects were pretty poor. Firstly, it actually harmed the US software industry because they couldn't actually export software that other countries could freely produce. And secondly, it left us with a legacy that we're only just getting rid of now where there were products that deliberately contained weak encryption that lived on for 20 years and was abused for long after. So, no, I think we'll still be having this debate in a long time, and I don't think that you can strengthen encryption by weakening it. If you want to read this piece, you can head on over to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. There's actually a lot of great comments on this article in particular, and Duck has been at it uh, replying to these comments. So if you want to get in on the conversation, go on over to that article and leave your comment. It's great. There, I mean, his, the, the, one of the last lines of the article is, where do you stand in this perennial debate? And there are some fascinating comments. Yes. Like, clearly everyone's frustrated and no one has a great answer for it. But it's, it, there's a lot of people that are like, if you do that, this, this will happen or this could happen. And there's all, all people from all different fields. So it's, I, had, I really enjoyed reading the comments. Speaking of comments, Doug, do we have a, a comment from in, sitting in comment purgatory for Yes, and I need a blocker allow on this because I just, I can't figure it out. (laughs) We found on an ancient article, it was about a company that had done something dodgy relating to uh, PII or personally identifiable information. A comment just simply says, and it hasn't been approved yet, so I need a blocker allow here. Do you have any? Do you (laughs) have any? Yeah, I did. (laughs) I I thought it was was like the the guy wanted to know, like, are we actually secretly one of those dark web web drug stalls you know like hey do you have any question mark and he, he means some uh illegal pharmaceuticals but there was no punctuation point at the end of it so i read it as do you have any and then he just disappeared in the middle of his sentence i say he um you know anonymous i, I don't know whether that's he or she but it was so what do you do doug like is it somebody who was actually cut off in their prime and we have to try and help them because <laughs> right. maybe they're lost and wandering around. They? they don't even know what they want. Yeah. Are you okay? If the question is, do I have any PII? I do. We all do. But I would like to keep it P. <laughs> yes. I want my II. My II is P. <laughs> I received a message just this afternoon and it was from someone who was completely anonymous and it said, good day. Did you receive the message I sent yesterday? Thank you. Maybe it's the same person. I was just thinking <laughs> going, that. Well, this is a, a rare double allow. <laughs> well, I wish I knew what they were after. Actually, no, I don't. No, no, no. I take that back. Block. <laughs> I don't want to know what they were after. They're um, after your double I, but that's P. <laughs> I'm going to hit up Unsolved Mysteries. You know, they've got a reboot of it on Netflix right now. Volume 2 j- yeah. just dropped. And I think we should reach out with these comments because I am mm-hmm. worried about this man who might have gotten kidnapped right in the middle of his comment. I'm loving the the title sequence for it, the music. I'm loving that. I'm not loving the no host. You need a host. 
but you need a Robert Stack type host. You don't need a Dennis Farina type host. You need a, an old <laughs> yeah. Robert Stack that unfortunately has left you us. You don't like Dennis Farina? Oh my God. Anyway, I mean, it's a great series. Do you think, I think that it's the great. person may have had narcolepsy? Oh yeah, and then they just fell right on their keyboard. There's so many possibilities. That's why I'm going to contact Unsolved Mysteries. Moving on. Our second story today is Russian quote-unquote, government hackers charged with cybercrimes by the U.S. So, six Russians allegedly employed by the Russian Main Intelligence Directorate, better known as the GRU, have been charged with cybercrimes by the U.S. Department of Justice. Now, the DOJ alleges that the defendants, all men, caused damage and disruption to computer networks worldwide, including France, Georgia, the Netherlands, Republic of Korea, Ukraine, the United Kingdom, and the United States. This group and its activities... It's quite a wild set, isn't it? Like random countries on the map, <laughs> here, there, and everywhere. It's like they but, just yeah. shot, you know, shot a dart at a map and was like, that country. Well, that's cybercrime for you, isn't it? It is very <laughs> globalised and it doesn't really matter who does it or where they are. We're all at risk. Yeah. Um, so this group and its activities, says the DOJ, have been given a variety of different nicknames by security researchers, Sandworm Team... Telebots, my personal favorite, Voodoo Bear, and Iron Viking. Duck, I know. I like Telebots. I think it's like a, a TV or an old phone turning into a it robot. It does feel very Transformers. I was expecting Doug to go, hey, they can't be Iron Viking. That's my Slayer cover band. <laughs> ah. uh, if you listen to the last episode, you will understand all these No, you these don't have to jokes. explain it. We, we want loyal listeners. They'll be nodding <laughs> along and laughing. Um, Duck, I know that our very own Chester Wisniewski, your buddy, he had some thoughts around this whole story and what the charges mean. Can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of what he had to say about this? You know, if you want to read Chester's full statement, go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You're quite insightful about what this means from a sort of state-sponsored hacking point of view. But the reason I wanted to quote Chester's piece is that he kind of says, you know what, this is not the end. And in some ways, this is not anything special. What it sort of proves is that whether you're facing a state-sponsored act as some kind of nation-state attacker, allegedly or otherwise, or just some little old cyber criminal working from home, the point is that the techniques that one group use leak out so that others can use them too. So that's the point that he was making, is the stuff that they do can easily be copied, or maybe they were taking some of it from cyber criminals. So just like we're talking now about backdoors, well, how do you control who has access to them? Exactly the same problem here. If you're going, oh, well, obviously, I'm much more at risk from state-sponsored actors, and wow, these are six guys, and they were bankrolled by a government and whatnot, I don't have to worry about anything else. In fact, the way you're going to defend against this is pretty much the same for wherever the attack's coming from, because the techniques that are being shared and used are the same, whether it's a cyber criminal who's aiming to ask you for $300 to unransomware your files, or whether it's someone who wants $3 million, the side effects are the same. You've still lost your files. You still need to get your business going again. Really, the bottom line of all of this is an ounce of prevention really, really is worth a pound of cure. It's an interesting group, too, because they've been together for more than 10 years, and they're, they don't really, doesn't seem that they specialize in anything. They're, 
using spear phishing, document exploits, password stealers, living off the land tools, supply chain hijacking, destructive wipers, um, and that they're using ransomware to create false flags for investigators. So kind of smoke screens, mm. kind of a mixed bag of yeah. uh, old and new school skills. Yeah, and I think it's quite rare these days that you'll see someone who is into something like malware doing it just to prove that they're really great at a particular type of coding. And if you go back to the very early days of viruses and malware, there were people who had joined the malware scene particularly for that purpose. Hey, look, I'll write the best rootkit in the world. Well, these days it isn't really about that. It's about, you know what, I'm going to pick and choose the techniques that work and I'm going to use them for whatever cyber criminal purposes are in my mind at the moment. Any cyber crook who's specializing is probably specializing in lots of different things and doesn't have to reinvent them all for him or herself. They can just go and borrow liberally from other parts of the ecosystem. All right, read and comment, nakedsecurity.sophos.com. That uh, article, again, is called Russian Government Hackers Charged with Cyber Crimes by the U.S. Moving right along, if you, like me, woke up this morning and immediately rushed up to your computer, opened up the menu in Chrome, selected Help About Chrome, and saw that the version you were running was (laughs) 86.0.4240.75, and then immediately opened up nakedsecurity.sophos.com and said, oh my God, I should be running 86.0.4240.111. That's exactly what I did this morning, Doug. It's one of those reminders that in many cases, the devil really is in the details you don't normally bother with, isn't it? My understanding is if you do use Chrome, there's a little a little colored circle with a vertical arrow and it will appear on the far right of the address bar when there's an update available. And it'll start out green for two whole days after an update was available. Then it goes yellow for a few days. And then after a week, I think it goes red to say, you know what? I could apply this update. I've already downloaded it, but you won't close the browser and reopening it to let me ingest the update. And so this is a reminder that you need to do that. That seems to be the, the flow of how you get updates, but this was a big one. Five security bugs, including one buffer overflow and three use after free vulnerabilities. And one of the bugs was already known to attackers and was out in the wild. So you think that they would put that as a red Yes, yeah. you or the yeah, the, you, know, you mean they'd skip the stick the green and yellow lights, yeah, go straight to to pulsing red, and maybe Doug it could go mm-hmm. beep 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 until you yes. disconnected the speaker. I, I guess it's nice that products have automatic updating features these days, but it's still not necessarily enough if the product has to if you have to close down the product and reopen it. it get in the habit of closing down your browser on a regular basis. Don't have 50 tabs open, all logged in, and keep them open for weeks on end, particularly since this bug just rather casually says in the, in the Google release, oh, an exploit against this is known to be in the wild. I sort of agree with you, Doug. I think they might have made a little bit more out of that, particularly since it said, oh, and we'll be pushing out this .111 update. You should receive it over the next days or weeks. Now, I thought Google was all about very, very prompt updating. So if you have a device that maybe has a you know, pre-built firmware and Chrome comes with that, and so you can't update it yourself because you're relying on a third party and you haven't got this latest version, maybe you want to go and ask that the, the, the manufacturer or the vendor of that device when they're going to be giving you the update because it sounds like the crooks are onto this already, so you might as well get onto it too. And the bug itself is interesting because it's, it's, a, it's a font bug, right? The bug 
apparently relates to a uh, a software toolkit called FreeType, which is a font rendering package. So it can load, consume, render, and beautifully display fonts such as uh, TrueType, OTF, Adobe Type 1, WAF, which is the what is it, the web open font format. So I'm guessing that if you wanted to put the bug through its paces, having a web page with a font in it and then rendering one or more characters in that font will be a good way to exercise a lot of it. Of course, Google is being tight-lipped about exactly how the bug works at this stage. I guess they don't want everybody suddenly knowing and trying it out. Mozilla does much the same. You know, although that's a full open source product, there are some bugs that when you click on them after then you're notified, there's a, a kind of grace period during which only insiders are actually allowed to see the raw details of how it works on the grounds that they figure from those details, very many more people would be able to figure out how to exploit it. So let's not share that information except to people who need to know. But we're not exactly sure how it works just yet. What we do know is you need to patch. Get the update or and or close down your browser every night, which I always, I love the feeling at the end of the day of just shutting all the windows down and yabba dabba doing <laughs> out of here just like Fred Flintstone. I'm done. Shutting off the monitors. That's, that's a wonderful I've just got, image. I've got really used to the idea of just not using sleep mode anymore. If I can see the little red light blinking on and off on top of my computer when I close it down at night, I think, you know what? I should go there and type sudo slash sbin slash halt and just shut the whole thing down. And I know that in the morning I'm kind of starting fresh. I can download the patches for the day and install them before I open my browser, before I log in, before I do any messaging. You know, That's a good healthy habit. Well, it, do, it just doesn't take as long as you think. The problem is, like many things, the longer you leave it, the harder it is. Mm-hmm. Because then you yeah. go, oh, I've got... I've got my I've got Visual Code Editor open. I've got seven yeah, I've got like two source code files open. open. Which one I can't remember which ones I was going to throw away, which ones I was going to revert, which ones I was going to save for later. And the same you look at you know, when you when your browser tabs are so narrow that you can't read what it says in any <laughs> yeah, of them. That's me. <laughs> and you think that this cannot end well. Sometimes it's just nice to start afresh. And that does mean particularly with for products like the Chromes or the Chromiums or the Firefoxes of the world, where the update's there waiting. All you have to do is close down and reopen. Yeah, but dabba do. <laughs> Try it, guys. It's great. <laughs> we have reached that portion of the episode. That's right. It's time for the oh no of the week. And oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's the oh no. And we have a user-submitted oh no. <gasps> I think season three, episode one article for the podcast duck that this comment was left on, correct? Yes, it was. Fantastic. Uh, a, a fantastic story going all the way back to the mid-1980s and a lesson that I think many of our listeners, if you work in IT or ever used to work in IT, either you'll have been there when someone else did this or when you tell the story, you will tell it as though somebody else did it. But in fact, you did may have done it yourself. We all have. Ooh. My favorite decade, the 80s. Do you miss shoulder pads? <laughs> Just as, a, as be... an interjection. Look, I admittedly own not one, 
but two blazers from the 80s and 90s, Ralph Lauren blazers that are vintage that have shoulder pads in them, and I wow. have no shame. By vintage, you mean Great. old. <laughs> if you're old, did you just call 80s and 90s old? I guess so. Where do you stand on the mullet? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. That's what I'm going to say. How can you be no pro-80s and anti-mullet? It just doesn't you add know, up. I accept it for that time in that era, but I don't want to see that now. We had an 80s party uh, a couple years ago, and I wore a mullet to this thing. I had a <laughs> mullet and a, a Minnesota North Stars t-shirt and some tight, tight jeans and some um, black boots. And the mullet got a lot of play from like the neighborhood moms. They were like, I actually... Uh, I kind of really <laughs> like that. The mullet is powerful in a in probably all the wrong ways, but um, not for me. It's okay. <laughs> not for me. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. So the Ono oh finally, regular reader and commenter Cassandra wrote regarding suggestion that you annually just check that you can restore your backup. A cautionary tale. If you only do this annually, you do not have a routine and you have to be very careful what you do. A place where I worked in the 1980s had an IBM AT on which marketing kept their database. IT did not like this because they did not control it. Putting forward all sorts of arguments, which included, if we handle the database, we back it up so you cannot lose your data if there is a hard disk crash. So to try to silence their criticism, marketing bought a tape drive and quote-unquote backed up the hard disk to the tape drive, I think, once per week. IT were still not happy, so to prove it worked, marketing decided to test their backup, as recommended by Duck. But the way they did it was not described by Duck. This is me taking a chance here. Format, C drive, backslash, asterisk, dot, asterisk, blah, blah. Boot from the PC, DOS, floppy. Restore D drive, C drive, or something like that. It was at this stage that they realized that their backup process had not worked. If you are going to do backups, good, you need to have a defined data safe way to check the backups and you need to follow it. It should not involve overwriting your live production data. The end. <laughs> yes, that's why when you do smoke alarm tests, you don't go, hey guys, let's just, uh, let's just set fire to a garbage can. Uh, under the smoke alarm, and then when it goes off, we'll put the fire out. There's a little bit too much at stake. When you don't have the master copy, then actually technically you don't have the backup because your backup is the master copy. And at that point, then you have to be careful, which is why you normally have a backup of a backup as well. And in the modern era, of course, folks, don't forget that the, the tape drive, I'm not saying you should use a tape drive. Some people see them as very old-fashioned or they have very high capacity now. You do need something that's offline. So at least a tape drive is a good idea that they copy it to a tape and then go and put the tape somewhere else. Because as we know, the ransomware crooks these days, when they're in your system, they will go looking for online backups you have and they'll wipe them out just before they hit with the ransomware. So if you think you can recover, the crooks might already have got your backup as well as your master copy and then you have nothing. What a time to be alive. My dad brought it at IBM AT home when uh, it was probably the mid to late 80s. They were quite the bee's knees, but you didn't want to bring them home often because IBM wanted them to be big so that they felt like they were worth the money. You know, they, so they had a very mainframe heft to them, did they not? 
This is the same computer, if you listen to the last episode, that I installed the Sound Blaster card in. So I have a lot of fond <laughs> memories of this computer. But one of the wow. first things I did within a day of owning it is, not that I owned it, but it was a family computer, but I had been used to, so we had an Apple IIc, and I would, my, my thing growing up was Sierra games. So like King's Quest, Space Quest, all these games. So then, and with Apple IIc, you just slid the disc in and that was it. There was no installation. So, but my friend had an IBM PC, and so I had kind of learned DOS, how to install it, and how, to, you, how you had to fire up the games. So this AT comes home, and it's running DOS shell, which is not the actual DOS prompt. And I'm thinking, what? I don't know how to work this thing. I need to install my Sierra game. And I know which game it was. It was King's Quest Three. Still oh, to this day. it wasn't Oh. Good old Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge. No, 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 no. King's Quest Three. That is the greatest That's Sierra where game. Mullets, mullets belonged in LLLLL.com. Yep. For sure. I'm um, sure there were some as well. EGA quality mullets too. So in an effort to get to the DOS prompt, I started deleting things in the shell, including deleting command.com, which deleted everything. So let me everything. get this straight. You felt that the best way to get at the files that were on the hard disk would be to delete them one by one. I may have been trying to free up space. I don't remember. I, and I remember being young, like eight so wow yeah and my dad was like how's the new computer and i was like oh uh it's something something's wrong not that i did something wrong but something's wrong (laughs) and this was i believe this was an old computer from his business that was brought home and repurposed so he put me on the phone to the it guy at the company and i was like i'm eight you know i don't know what i did but i knew i had done something (laughs) wrong and restarted it and it said uh bad or missing command interpreter I, uh, I, so I was trying to explain to this guy without actually admitting to what I'd done. And he finally just got fed up and said, Bruce, it's my dad, bring it in tomorrow. I'll take a look at it. And then the next day it was, uh, working, but with booting directly into DOS. So, and you were a bit more cautious, were you? So it yeah, sounds like it would... that may have been a formative <clears throat> lesson because you didn't oh, actually, definitely. you hadn't been using the computer for months and lose a whole load of stuff. It was Phew. a great time to be in, into computers because adults weren't like my dad didn't know what was going on. So for me to say, like, there's something wrong with the computer, he just assumed there's something wrong with the computer. Not that my eight-year-old son did anything, but he, was, he just had no idea. So he would have been furious if he knew. Dad, I don't believe it. It was working fine, and then it stopped. <laughs> yeah. There is a part in King's Quest Three if you've played it, where you have to walk down this mountain pass, and it's really tough, and you would always fall off and die. And on the Apple IIc, I had slammed my fist down on the keyboard in a fit of rage, and I broke the H key. And that was another time where I was like, Dad, the key- there's something wrong with the keyboard. <laughs> the keyboard so, broke. <laughs> so the lessons I learned as a young computer user were not to do things like slam the keyboard and delete command.com, but I also learned poor lessons like you can get away with breaking the computer uh, without actually taking responsibility for it. So in retrospect, I wished I had learned to be more honest. So, why a, H? Was that an important, was that the right go in the to middle. the left? Yeah, it was just right down the middle. <laughs> yeah. That poor HQ. Yeah. As someone who works in marketing, I think some sage advice from marketing person to other fellow marketing people is to just listen to IT. <laughs> uh, You're just going to make it, it worse. Sounds, yeah. Exactly. It, it sounds like simple advice, but I would highly recommend just listen to me, marketer to marketer, if there just so happens to be a marketer listening to me, Can please, you imagine for the love us of in everything t- in good. In 2020, being like, IT, we got, we'll do our own backups. Don't worry about it. Saying oh, God. That nowadays? Oh, God. No. I, I No. I would sooner jump off a bridge or date a guy who sports a mullet. Oh. <laughs> Guys, what a great episode. 
again, I'm Kimberly Trung. By my side, Doug Ameth. By my other side, Paul Ducklin. And as always, if you have an oh no that you want to submit to us, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Leave an anonymous comment on one of and our articles. And it's okay if it really happened to you and you say it happened to somebody else. Yeah, I don't care if it says, oh, this happened to a friend. Look, yeah, my friend Dave broke the key. Exactly. Not- Wink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, leave your comments. You can leave them anonymously, or you can email us tips at sophos.com. I want to read your onos and I want to hear from you. So please submit any story. And of course, follow us. If you liked what you listened to today, leave us a five star review in Apple Podcasts. So go ahead, leave us a review. And. Until next time, stay Ken sent me. <laughs>